The Italian novelist and poet Pavese uh, made this statement about moments. We do not remember days, we remember what? Moments. We do not remember days, we remember moments. There's probably very little disagreement when it comes to the significance of moments in life. For example, do you remember the moment when the space shuttle Challenger blew up 73 seconds after takeoff? If you were alive at that time, you probably remember that moment. It was about 37 years ago last week that the anniversary of that tragic event happened. Do you remember where you were when you heard about 9-11 and the planes going into the World Trade Center in New York City? Do you remember what you were doing when you first heard the news about three years ago this April about Nova Scotia's mass shooting? Do you remember where you were and what you were doing? I'm sure most of us remember that moment. Almost every significant event that has happened in our lives, positive or negative, is associated with a moment. In our mind, we vividly remember not seconds or hours, we remember moments. Take a moment and try to answer this question for yourself, for your own personal life this morning. If you're watching online or in this room, just let your imagination go for just a second. Can you remember a moment from your life that was pivotal and life-changing, that that moment was a pivotal, life-changing moment that you will never, ever forget that moment. I'm talking about a moment where everything leading up to that moment was preparation for that moment. That's the kind of moment I'm talking about, that every moment leading up to that moment was the groundwork for that pivotal moment in your life. Perhaps you're thinking this morning the birth of a child or the birth of children in, my, in, my, in your life was a pivotal moment. That that child or children coming into your life was very instrumental. It changed everything in your life. Or, or maybe you'd like to back up the bus a little bit and go, well, let's just start with the wedding. That was the pivotal moment before the children that really changed everything. And some of you here this morning would say, Nope, it's not the wedding, and it's not the children that was the pivotal moment in my life. I would have to say the pivotal moment in my life was the spiritual awakening or spiritual epiphany that I had in my spiritual and in my life. Some others would say it was the educational diploma that I received. That was the pivotal moment. Others would say that it was the financial goal or dream that I achieved in my life. That was the, that was the pivotal moment in my life. In evaluating pivotal moments, I've discovered this truth for us this morning, that pivotal moments stand on the shoulders of other moments. Pivotal moments in our life stand on the shoulders of other moments in our life. In other words, pivotal moments just don't happen. It's not like cracking open a Kinder Surprise. Have you ever cracked open a Kinder Surprise? You have no idea what's inside, and the best part is the chocolate. Generally, what's inside ends up broken or you throw it in the trash, but it's a kinder surprise. You know, pivotal moments are not like that at all. They're not just, whoops, there it is. There are other moments that contribute to the pivotal moment that happens in our life. The pivotal moment stands on the shoulders of other moments that lead up to that very significant moment in our life. Sometimes all the moments leading up to the pivotal moment are clear and recognizable. Let's go back to the birth of a child again. For most, you can probably pinpoint the moment that conception happened. That was not the pivotal moment. 
you can think of month one and month two and month three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine. And when that child is born into the world, that is a very pivotal moment. You can actually see and touch and feel that child. But every step, every moment along the journey was contributing to that pivotal moment. You clearly knew what was coming nine months. Or you thought you knew. But it was based on all the other moments, and you knew each moment would contribute to that pivotal moment. Pivotal moment. And then there are other times when there are moments in our life that contribute to a pivotal moment that those moments leading up to that pivotal moment, they are blurry and confusing, and they are very discouraging. You don't know what the end game is. And, you, and all the moments leading up to that, they make no sense. They're just confusing and discouraging. In our new sermon series, we discover many moments leading up to the pivotal moment. And I think that this is very core for us this morning to take a few moments to ex explore what leads up to the Ten Commandments. Now, we could go back to Genesis chapter 1 and say that's the, that's the first moment. We're not going to do that this morning. We're actually going to jump into Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph is given a dream. This is a very, this is a moment. Joseph is given a dream by God that his brothers would bow down to him. And he tells his brothers the dream. He tells his father the dream, Jacob. He tells everything, anybody who would listen the dream. It was a moment, but nobody would listen. It was a moment, Genesis chapter 37. Joseph, because of that dream, his brothers were extremely jealous towards him, and so they decide they're going to kill him, but thank goodness there's a brother or two who has some common sense, and they decide not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery. It's another moment. In Genesis 39, Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt. It's another moment. In Genesis 39 and 40, Joseph finds himself in an Egyptian jail. It was another moment, a long moment, because he spent a couple of years there. In Genesis 41, Joseph finds himself interpreting Pharaoh's dream of seven fat cows being eaten by seven scrawny cows and, and seven fat heads of grain being consumed by seven scrawny, dead-looking heads of grain. And, and he, his interpretation of the dream was from God. There are seven bad years of, seven good years of, of crops coming, and there are seven bad years of famine coming. And because of the interpretation of that dream, Joseph finds himself in another moment. He is second in command of all of Egypt, only under Pharaoh. Pharaoh's top under him, it is Joseph, and he has dominion over the whole land of Egypt. In Genesis 42, Joseph finds his brothers doing what? Kneeling before him. Remember the first moment? Joseph has a dream. Here in Genesis chapter 42, we discover that his brothers are kneeling before him because there is a drought that has gripped all of the Middle East and Northern Africa. It was a moment. In Genesis 46, Joseph relocates his entire family, including his father Jacob, to Egypt. It was a moment. Exodus chapter 1. Joseph's descendants, blessed by God, are prosperous, and the Egyptians are jealous, and they're nervous. What if the Israelites turned on us? We could not defend ourselves. So the Egyptians make Joseph's descendants slaves. Are you following all these moments? In Exodus chapter 2, Moses escapes death as an infant via in a basket in the Nile River. It's another moment. 
In Exodus chapter 13, Moses guides Abraham and Jacob and Joseph's descendants out of the land of Egypt and across the Red Sea. Guess what? It's another what? It's another moment. In Exodus 13, or Exodus 19 and 20, Moses leads the tribe that he is caring, some, uh, caring for, almost over 2 million people. He leads them to the foothills of a place called Mount Sinai. It was a what, church? It was a moment. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses gives, uh, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And Moses then gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments. It is an extremely pivotal moment, Exodus chapter 20. The pivotal moment in Exodus chapter 20 stands on the shoulders of all the other moments leading from Genesis 37 up to Exodus chapter 20. Over four centuries, over 400 years of moments led to this pivotal moment in Exodus chapter 20. I want to welcome you to our series this morning where we're looking at the Ten Commandments over the next eight weeks, and we are not going to drop two of the commandments. We're going to look at all ten commandments, but this week we're looking at two, and another week we'll look double up and do another two. But ten commandments over the next eight weeks, and we're calling it Back to Basics. We're looking in-depthly at the ten commandments. Oddly enough, Exodus 20 is not only a pivotal moment for Moses and Abraham's descendants and Jacob's descendants, Exodus chapter 20 continues to be a pivotal moment for every person from Exodus chapter 20 to 2023. They are still valid today. Bill Bright offered this thought on the importance of the Ten Commandments when he said, I remember when Ronald Reagan was president, he said, if the American people obeyed the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule, we wouldn't have any problems. The first time I heard him say it, I thought, that's just too simplistic. There are complicated problems. But if you analyze it, he's what? He's right. A lot of people go, well, there's too many complicated cultural ideas and philosophies and thoughts that we're dealing with today that that the Ten Commandments don't cover them. I, I argue that if we just obeyed by the Ten Commandments, observed the Ten Commandments, lived out the Ten Commandments, most of our problems in society and in the world and in our life today would be taken care of. In scanning the Ten Commandments, you'll quickly recognize that there are two divisions in the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. So a person's relationship with God are dealt with in the first four commandments. And then in the next six commandments, we discover that they deal with interpersonal um, relationships. Working with other people. First four with God, the next six are with other people you will discover that the Ten Commandments, when it's actually translated from the Hebrew, does not say Ten Commandments. It actually says Ten Words. The Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, are not complicated. It is not rocket science. You don't need a degree to understand it from the University of Know-It-All. All you need is to simply obey the Ten Commandments. They are basic and simplistic. We, not God... Let me say that again. We, not God, have made the Ten Commandments complicated. Probably nobody wants to say amen to that one. But we have. We chafe under the Ten Commandments. We we look for a loophole around the Ten Commandments. 
There must be an A or B or C or D to the one commandment or the second commandment or the third commandment. There there must be some way around that commandment. They chafe under us, the Ten Commandments do. The struggle with the Ten Commandments is real. Comedian George Carlin made this joke about the Ten Commandments. He said this, The real reason that we can't have the Ten Commandments in a courthouse, you cannot post, thou shalt not steal, Thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not lie in a building full of lawyers, judges, and politicians. It creates a hostile work environment. I was like, I don't like a lot of Georgia stuff, but I like that. That's kind of funny. Of course, George Carlin was poking fun at lawyers and judges and politicians who have a real struggle sometimes with living out the Ten Commandments. But the struggle is not just for lawyers and politicians and uh, um, And the other one judges that he talks about. Every human being struggles with the Ten Commandments. They're real. And the struggle with the Ten Commandments are very real. So let's dive into the real problem that we have with the Ten Commandments. Here's what we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God gave the people all these instructions. In verse 2, we find the first commandment. Say it with me, church. I am the Lord your God, keep reading, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, who placed The place of your slavery. Sorry, that's not the first commandment, but this is the first commandment, which we will read together. Let's go. You must not have any other God but me. And then in verse 4, the second commandment, you must not make for yourself any idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. And then in verse 5, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. In the latter part of 5, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. And then in verse 6, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and do what? Obey my commands. The book of Exodus is a story of God's miraculous deliverance for Israel. It becomes a book of moments and applications as God establishes his covenant and his commandments with his people. I would argue Exodus 20 is probably the most important chapter in the entire book of Exodus. Why would ten words or ten commandments be so important and be so pivotal? There are a lot of other moments from Genesis 37 over 400 years leading up to Exodus chapter 20. Why wouldn't one of those moments be pivotal moments? Why would not the releasing of the Israelites from from Pharaoh be a pivotal moment? Why would not crossing the Red Sea be a pivotal moment? Why is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, a pivotal moment in the life of Israel and the descendants of Joseph and Abraham and Jacob? Why are they a pivotal moment for us today? Because God is establishing three core principles in in the Ten Commandments. He is saying, remember, worship, and serve God. Those are the three things he's establishing here. He has never established these three principles until this moment in time. He wrote them down, and Moses wrote them down, excuse me, and gave them to Israel. And he was saying, never forget these three things. Jesus and his teachings, we see it throughout the entire Bible. God is constantly saying, remember me, worship me, and serve me. They're the three core principles that we find coming out of the Ten Commandments. 
They are three core principles that carry forward from Exodus chapter 20 to 2023. A pivotal moment in our life is when we remember, when we worship, and when we serve God. You might have a whole bunch of other pivotal moments that you go, that's a pivotal moment in my life, but I'm here to tell you that if you remember God and you worship God and you serve God, that's a pivotal moment. Even before issuing the Ten Commandments, God is clear in His intentions uh, by giving His instructions to Moses. Before He even lands commandment number one, this is what uh, God said to Moses. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. What is God telling Moses in this moment? He is saying, remember, worship, and serve. Remember who I am. And remember who has delivered you. And remember, I am the Lord your God. If we fast forward past Exodus chapter 20, we discover this, that every time Israel failed to remember and worship and serve God, whenever they failed to remember God, they would soon, it would soon follow they would stop worshiping God, and whenever they stopped worshiping God, they would stop doing what? Serving God. It all started with remembering. See, when they stopped remembering God, then they started worshiping other things. And when they started worshiping other things, they were truly forgetting God and not serving God. God was declaring, remember, never forget. It was I who rescued you from the darkness, and it was I who rescued you from the bondage of slavery. The most pivotal moment in anyone's life is the moment when we recognize that it is God who rescues us, amen? It is God who rescues us from the darkness. It is God who rescues us from the bondage and from the sin. And that is what God is trying to establish here with Moses and the Israelites. He is trying to say for every generation after this moment in time, they must never forget. Remember, I am the Lord Almighty, and I am the one who has delivered you from bondage and slavery and sin. Sadly, we, we never truly glory in God until we have completely disregarded our own glory. We have to disregard our own pride and our own glory. And when we do, then we really glory in God. To remember, worship, and serve God means command number one. And this is what commandment number one is, only God. That's it, only God. You must have no other what? God, but me. I'm it. I'm the only one. God was declaring a very simple truth. There are no other gods but me. The greatest challenge facing the church today is allowing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life and the Lord of our church. Despite popular opinion, the greatest challenge is not the existence of God or debates around the existence of God. The greatest challenge is allowing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life. Living for God and only God. That's the greatest challenge facing the church today. That's the greatest challenge facing any Christian today. It is allowing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life and is saying it is only God and God only in my life. God was talking about lordship in commandment number one. 
He was talking about allowing God. He was talking about allowing Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life. Perhaps we need to answer this question this morning. What is, what is lordship? What does that word, what does that, um, what does that question mean? Well, there are three measurements when it comes to lordship. Lordship is in accepting the sovereignty of God. That's the first step. That's the first moment when you accept the sovereignty of God. Lordship begins when we discover and accept that God is sovereign. What does, me, what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that God is ruler and has dominion over everything. His, he's sovereign over everything. He's accountable to no one. He is God. In a very obscure way of thinking, at best, we sometimes think we're sovereign over a few things. Maybe we think we're sovereign over our money, or, or we're sovereign over a relationship, or we're sovereign over something else. But at the very least, we are only sovereign, if you want to use that terminology, over a very few things in our life. Why would we not want to trust and surrender and follow God who is sovereign over everything? That's the question. A God who is sovereign over life and death and sickness and sin and nature and earth and heaven and the stars and on and on and on and on and on and on. We could go this morning. God is sovereign over everything. And if God is sovereign over everything, then why would we not accept the sovereignty of God in our life? God, you're sovereign over everything. Now be sovereign over me. That's the first moment to discovering lordship. The second is lordship is positioning God first. It is positioning God first. You must not have any other God or gods but who? Me. Not me, but, you know, God. Jesus. Lordship is positioning God first in our life. Jesus offered this advice when questioning about the law of Moses in Matthew 22. He said... But when the Pharisees heard what he had, that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. Then in verse 35, uh, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Now the Ten Commandments often is labeled the law of Moses, but it is actually the law of God. And then only thousands of other commandments made by man to kind of define the Ten Commandments enter the picture for the rest of the entire Old Testament. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your, say this with me, church, heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then he goes on to say this, this is the first and greatest commandment. Then in verse 39, a second is equally important, love your neighbor as what? As yourself. And then verse 40, the entire law does what? And the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, make God first and only in your life. Love him with all of your what church? Heart and soul and mind. Let him be the Lord of your life. Let him be sovereign over your life and over your dreams and over your wishes and over your thoughts. Let him be the Lord of your life. Positioning God first in our life is of utmost importance. But sadly, here's what many of us do. Jesus, you can be 
the Lord of my soul, but let me keep my heart and mind. Have you ever seen that happen? I have far too many times. Jesus, you are, have dominion over my soul because I want to spend eternity in heaven, but I want to keep my heart and mind. Imagine a couple who gets married for a second. Imagine a couple who's getting married, and one of the spouse, after their, their ceremony, moves into the other spouse's house. And the spouse that has the home says, my house is your home. And then says, but there are two rooms in this home that is now ours that you cannot go in or touch or have anything to do with. Those two rooms are mine, and they are off limits to you. How successful is this marriage going to be? You already know the answer, right? This isn't going to work. Because in a relationship, there's trust. And when there is trust, there is an openness, and there's a transparency. And, and the one spouse will eventually either behind the back of the other spouse find out what's in those two rooms, or go, this is it. If you're not all in, then I'm all out. And yet that is exactly what we do with Jesus. We go to Jesus, my life is your home, Jesus. Come on in. You can have every part of me, but there's a couple of spots that you can't have. My heart and my mind. I need to keep those. How well is that relationship going to work? About as well as the two people getting married. When one of them says, you can't have this, these two rooms. Here's what God says. If you don't trust me with all, you don't really trust me at all. That's what he's saying in this commandment. I must be the Lord your God, the only one. Because if you don't trust me with everything, then you really don't trust me at all. When we love God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, we are positioning God to be the first and the most important thing in our life, there is no room for any other God. Third, well, what is lordship? Lordship is doing the will of God. It is doing the will of God. Doing is a step beyond accepting and positioning God first in our lives. I mean, that is very important, and I'm not trying to take anything away by, by, accepting, uh, by accepting and positioning God to be the Lord of our life, but if we never do then what we have positioned God to be and accepted God to be is useless. They are important steps, but this lordship is doing the will of God. And doing is a step beyond accepting and a step beyond positioning God as the Lord of our life. It is actually showing God and it is actually showing other people that Jesus is the Lord of our life. We're not just saying it, we're actually doing it. We're not just pretending that Jesus is the Lord of my life. We're actually doing the will of God, showing God and showing other people, I'm all in, God. I I'm, I'm, I'm want to do your will. I want other people to see that you are the Lord of my life. And so lordship is doing the will of God. I believe many of us are educated way beyond the level of our obedience. Let me say that again. I believe many of us are educated well beyond the level of our obedience. We know it. We all know it, or maybe I should say most of us know it, 
We just don't do what we already know. Amen? Zig Ziglar said this, if God had wanted us to live in a permissive society, he would have given us ten suggestions and not ten commandments. He would have made commandment number one a suggestion. I should be the Lord of your life. However, if you entertain other gods into your life, that's okay by me. That's not what God said, is it? God said, I must be the only God in your life. I must be the only God in your life. I must be the Lord of your life. And you must love me with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul. Command number one, only God. Very quickly, let's look at command number two, which God tells Moses, no idols. No idols. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Idolatry happens when we replace God's rightful position in our life with something else. Idolatry happens when we replace God's rightful position. It flows into commandment number one or flows out of commandment number one in our life with something else. You see, commandment number two is a pivotal moment not only for you and not only for me, but for generations that will follow in our footsteps. What does God go on to say in the following verses to Moses to tell the Israelites? That you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. And if you do, that will not only affect your life, but it will affect generation two and three and four. But for those who trust and obey and make me the Lord of their lives, a thousand generations I will bless. You see, this is not just pivotal for you, but this is pivotal for the generations that will come after you. Like, this is, this is solid and serious stuff. But we often replace God or compliment God. Maybe we don't replace Him. Maybe we just kind of compliment Him with many things. I've seen a spouse be an idol. I've seen a child be an idol in someone's life. I've seen the church be an idol. I've seen the, the uh, job be an idol. I've seen money and sex and nature and social media. And I could go on and on and on and list you the idols that people make in their life that complement their relationship with God. Charlie Campbell had this intriguing perspective on idols. He said lots of people today would never consider themselves guilty of idolatry as, as far as it is spelled out in the Ten Commandments. But by reducing God to some benevolent man upstairs whose only attributes are love and tolerance and who could not care less about sin, they truly have transgressed God's commandment. He goes on to say this, they have created a God in their mind who does not actually exist and who will, on the day of judgment, not be able to offer them any help. We must be extremely careful, church. This is back to the basics kind of stuff. We must make God, we must make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, and there is no room for any other God. And we must not complement the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life with any other idol. I often wonder, what is an idol? It's as broad as the question can be. And my youth leader told me this one day. He said, 
An idol in your life is anything that cools or takes away from your relationship with Jesus Christ. I was like, I can get that. I can understand that. Because there are many things in life that will pull us away from making Jesus Christ the Lord of our life. That will cool our relationship with Christ. Who will pull us, that will pull us away from Christ. The issue of idolatry has become a silent killer in the church. Now I'm sounding the alarm bell. But don't, understand, don't misunderstand me this morning. Idolatry has always been a silent killer. Idolatry quietly and persistently replaces God in people's lives. Why did God make the second commandment have no idols in your life on the heels of making God the Lord of your life? Why, why did he do that? Because idols are a problem that affect our relationship with God. If you have taken the challenge for reading through the Bible in 2023, a few weeks ago you would have discovered that Jacob's wife Rachel, they were leaving town fast and going to Canaan, when she goes into her uncle's household and takes several of his household idols and puts them in her bag. Later, she lies about it in front of her uncle. You see, idols have always been a problem. While Egypt, while um, Joshua brought his family to, to Egypt, 70 of them or so, over 400 years they grew to 2 million people plus. Living over 400 years in the land of Egypt, Israel began to merge the Egyptian gods with Yahweh. And there was a merger taking place. Did they leave their idols behind when they left Pharaoh? Nope. They packed them up with all their other stuff as they left Egypt. They packed little gods and symbols of Osiris and Isis and Horus, some of the Egyptian gods that brought fortune or believed to bring fortune and good luck and productivity to your household. In fact, we see idol worship rearing its ugly head in Exodus chapter 32 when Aaron melts gold into a golden what? Calf. Where do you suppose they got the gold from? That was from Egypt. They melted it. Do you suppose Aaron said, he argued, well, I just put the gold in the pot and melted it and out came the calf. We know better than that. There was probably some worshiping of cows and calves in Egypt. They learned it somewhere. We find the words of Jesus concerning idols in Matthew chapter 6. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6 verse 24? He said, no one can serve who? Two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Jesus was talking about money, but you can insert anything you want in there. Anything that pulls us away from Jesus Christ is an idol. Anything that cools our relationship with Christ is an idol. Several verses later, Jesus indirectly affirms the second commandment by saying this in verse 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. You don't need any other idols in your life, Jesus is saying. You don't need to substitute or complement the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all and if he is Lord of your life, you don't need anything else. You just need him. So here's what 
we find God only, command number one. Remember, worship, and serve. God only, no other God. Make Him the Lord of your life. Give Him the Lordship of every area of your life. Surrender your life to Him. And then, in your spiritual journey with Jesus, don't make any other idols that will take away from the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? In the book, The Wounded Healer, a story is retold of an ancient teaching from India. Four royal brothers began to go off and were, were taught a special ability. And so after some time and learning their special ability, they came back together to converse, to see what each brother had for an ability or skill. The first one said, the first brother said, I have mastered a science by which I can take the bone of some creature and create flesh that goes with it. The second brother said, I, I can, uh, if you can put, take a bone and put flesh onto it, I, I can put the hair on that flesh. And the third brother said, my skill or ability is that I can create limbs if I have the flesh, the skin, and the hair. And the fourth brother said, and I know how to give that creature life if the form is complete. So the brothers decided that they would go into the jungle and try out their skills. And they came across a bone which they didn't know was a lion's bone. And one added flesh to the bone, the second grew the, the, the hide and the hair over the flesh, the third completed the matching limbs, and the fourth gave the lion life. Shaking its mane, coming to life, the ferocious beast arose and jumped on the four brothers, killing them all before vanishing into the jungle. Sadly, we have the capacity to create things that can devour us. We do. Goals, dreams, and possessions, and degrees, and property, and relationships all can turn on us and destroy us. That is why God commanded. That is why God commanded. You must have no other gods but me. That is why God commanded. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Because it will come and devour you. But I will give you life and hope mercy I am the God who brought you out of Egypt and I am the God who will take you to the promised land Jesus is the one who died on the cross and rose again who sits at the right hand of God the Father and when we make Jesus Christ the Lord of our life he is the one who's delivered us from darkness and evil and slavery and bondage to eternal life he must be the only Lord of our life. And we must make no other image that pulls away from his lordship in our life. Amen, church? Let's get back to the basics of making God the only one in our life. Let's get back to the basics of not substituting or complementing the lordship of Jesus Christ with anything else. Just let him be the Lord of your life. It's a pivotal moment. 
it is a pivotal moment for everyone in this room and watching online this morning to make Jesus the Lord of our lives. Let me pray with you this morning. If you're watching online, I'd encourage you to bow your heads and close your eyes as well. And there is a line um, at the bottom of the screen with a phone number onto it. We'd encourage you to text that number for prayer this morning. Later, after the team comes and sings a closing song with us, there'll be people willing to pray with you this morning. Here's my question as we get back to the basics this morning. Church, just before I pray for us, is God the only one in your life? Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? And if we go into command number two, have you complimented or substituted the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life with something else that has taken away the fire and the passion and the desire? It's clouded the clarity that you may have. It's time to destroy them and let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Father God, we thank you that despite public opinion, the Ten Commandments are still real today for us. They are just ten basic, simple commands that you give to us that properly align us in a relationship with you, God, and properly align us with other people. And yet we chafe under it. And we try to find loopholes around them because we don't really necessarily like them. But we know this, that your ways are the best ways. And our ways, well, they always seem to devour us. So today we surrender our life to you. If there's people in this room or watching online who have not made you, Jesus, the Lord of their life, I pray that they would position you as the Lord of their life. This day, Jesus, we give you permission to be have dominion over every area of our life. Forgive us of our sin. And Jesus, give us your power and authority to conquer idols that are in our life that have been taking away from our relationship with you. Lord, that room or two that we put a lock on and said you can't go there, we want to today take the lock off and say go on in, Jesus. It's all yours. We want you to be the only God in our life. And we want to make no other idol in our life. Help us as we seek you, Jesus as we surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name.